I'd like to go ahead and just pray one more time with you guys. Father, we are coming here needy. Father, I want to acknowledge publicly my absolute dependence on you. Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, of unclean thoughts. And so, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. You would use me and speak through me. And that we would receive your word. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, When I was in kindergarten, I went to a, a Christian school. It's called Bethesda. Christian school. This was in Indiana. And uh, my brothers, or I have two older brothers, and they um, went to the same school as I did. And we would do the after school daycare um, while we waited on my mom to get off work to come pick us up. So one day, I just have this very vivid memory. It might be one of my earliest memories in childhood, in life. And uh, I have this memory that one day she came to pick us up and we all, uh, the three of us went out to the car and jumped into the van. But she had to go in and talk with the teacher. I forget what it was, but she had to go inside. And and I remember as a kindergartner thinking I forgot something. For whatever reason, I also went back inside after she had already gone in. So I go inside, maybe I went to the bathroom, I I don't remember. And when I came back out, the van was gone. Now, if you're a kindergartner, this is worst nightmare situation. Like, if anything you can imagine, this is worst case scenario. In fact, it was so bad, I actually watched the van drive away. Right? And that's just traumatizing. And I remember thinking to myself, as a kindergartner, this is it. I will now live in the woods. I'm going to be a homeless child. I'm going to be one of the children in, in Neverland who just never grows up. I'm just going to go live in the woods and, and live off of the berries and the nuts that I find. And this is what I'm thinking. But then I re- remembered, we only live like a mile that way. I didn't think in like actual terms of mileage, but I just knew we live that way. And so I was like, okay, I can just make it. I can make it. So I started walking. Right? I started walking from my school, but I got like past the building onto the sidewalk, and then I saw like this guy who was just jogging towards me. And in my brain, that's a serial killer right there. That is a man <laughs> who wants to kill me. He's going to take me, and he's going to you know, whatever it was. So in my brain, I'm like, okay, well, that's obviously a no. And so I'm, I turn back around, but I'm like, I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go. And so I'm thinking in my brain the whole time, my mom has left me. Actually, you know what I'm thinking is, <laughs> I'm not really thinking anything at this point. I'm melting down. And so right in the parking lot, I just started weeping. And uh, there's this just angel of a lady who just showed up. And she was like, has your mother left you? Are you here all alone? Where are your parents? And she's just like freaking out for me. Which just makes it worse for me, because I'm like, if an adult realizes how terrible this situation is, it really is a terrible situation. And so I can't answer her. I'm just like, (laughs) and I can't get words out. I realized then, my mom actually never made it out of the parking lot. What had happened was, me and my brothers, being young boys, were always pulling pranks on my mom. 
And so all the time, one of us would be hiding behind a chair in the car, one of the seats, and we'd go, Oh, Mom, Josh is not in the car. Oh, Mom. And she'd be like, where is he? And then he'd come out and go, I'm right here, gotcha. And we did that all the time. And so I'm in, in the building. My mom comes back out, and my brothers are like, Mom, James isn't here. And she's like, ha, 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 boom. And she goes. And then they're like, no, Mom, he's really not here. So she didn't even make it out of the parking lot. She comes back around and she just sees me there weeping with this lady uh, freaking out right next to me and my mom. She had that mix. I don't know. I don't know if it's an emotion that anybody else other than a mom can feel of like anger at your child, but also like this terrible sadness and this shame that I left the child behind all floods in at the same time. My mom's like, my baby, my baby. And she just felt so bad about it. And now I have abandonment issues. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the, here's the thing I learned at a young age, like honestly, that is one of my earliest memories, is that, man, bad things really do happen in life. It's like one of the lessons I learned in that situation is like these terrible, terrible things happen. My mother loves me, but in that moment I felt like she abandoned me. She didn't. But I just remember thinking, like, that was a terrible situation in life. Like, that was painful. So much of life's pain that we go through is usually experienced in relationship. And I don't want to stir up too much in the room right now, but if you think about some of the most painful events in your life, it usually involves a relationship, right? It would, it would involve marital strife. It would involve drama with friends. It would involve annoying coworkers or a demanding boss or kids making bad decisions. A lot of the pain that we experience, most of the pain that we experience, it happens in relationship. I mean, life would be great if it just wasn't for people, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Life would be great if it just wasn't for people. Unfortunately, people inhabit this planet with us. And so relationships are usually unavoidable, which means pain is unavoidable, right? Pain is unavoidable. Of course, some people try to avoid relationships because they don't want to deal with the pain. A lot of people try, they, they just tell themselves, I'm not going to get too close because it just hurts too much. I'm going to defend myself from the pain of relationships. And of course, that leads to a whole new set of problems because loneliness and isolation multiplies the pain that you're going to experience in life. It's just like you can't get away from it. The better option, the healthy the Christian option is rather to accept that pain is a part of relationship and actually learn to embrace it. Actually learn to embrace the pain of relationship. Proverbs 15, 27. If you're still doing the Proverbs challenge, you would have read this this morning or you're going to read it later on today. Proverbs 15. Just look at verse 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain... Troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Meaning, your sin doesn't just hurt you, it hurts those who are around you. This is a principle of relationships bring pain. If you skip to the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 28. You'll find uh, another verse that speaks to this. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. So you're going to read that one tomorrow. 
right? So you're going to find stuff like this all throughout Proverbs. In fact, it was really hard for me to settle on just like one proverb to talk about. Because you're going to see this over and over and over again all throughout the Proverbs. This idea of relationships causing pain. The person who has many friends is going to find pain. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's another one you'll find in, in Proverbs. You're going to see it all throughout the whole thing. But then you also catch these glimpses of hope. You also catch these things of like, well, it's not all pain. Like, it's not all the pain of life that you're going to experience in relationships. In fact, the best experiences in life also involve relationships. If you think about the best experiences of your life, involves usually a wedding, or usually a child being born, or usually uh, your child getting married, right? Some of the best experiences you have in life, some of the best vacations you had was because it was with the people that you loved, right? The best experiences we have are in relationships. So if you look at the next chapter, chapter 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity that's, that's so interesting a brother is born for adversity now you can either say like my brother was born and brought adversity you could read it that way that's probably true or you could read it as i have adversity and the brother is born to walk through it with me that's probably more the truer one um, in the context, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born to walk through adversity with you. Meaning you're not meant to go through life's pains on your own. That even though relationships bring pain into your life, relationships are also meant to, to relieve, or maybe not even relieve, to at least just feel the pain with you. To walk through the pain with you. To alleviate some of that loneliness and some of that pain in your life. So the book of Proverbs is a difficult one to preach. And I mean, I think all the guys who have preached in here would agree. Because you can't do it expositionally the way you would, we would like it. I mean, that's my preferred is the verse-by-verse exposition of, of a passage is what I like. But when you have Proverbs, you, this isn't a narrative. It's not a really a historical book. It's a book of short, wise sayings. And they're oftentimes just shotgunned into there. It's like someone else just like followed Solomon around and they would just record. Anytime he said something, why is it like, ooh, yeah, get that. Ooh, yeah, get that. And it usually is just kind of just shotgunned in there, right? And so it's hard to take it verse by verse by verse. That's why oftentimes we, we bounce around in the book of Proverbs. Or if you've been reading through it and then after you've read a chapter, you're kind of like, I have no idea what to take away from this. It's because just shotgunned in there and it's just this overload of well that's good that's good that's good that's wise that's wise and it's just kind of this overload so what i found to be good and healthy is maybe just take one proverb that just really stuck out one one wise saying that really just kind of settles in a little deeper than the rest and and dwell on that one for a little while and so what we can do is we can take these principles that we find shotgunned into the book of proverbs and if you want a narrative, if you want a historical account, then you can flip through some other passages in the scripture to find the principle of this proverb played out. Right? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. In fact, if we're talking about painful relationships, you actually don't have to look very far in the Bible to find a story of some painful 
relationships, of some pain in or as a result of relationships. The Bible says um, it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so God made him a companion. God looked at Adam and he's like, nope, this isn't good. He's going to go through some stuff and he's going to need a companion. He's, he's lonely. He's going to be feeling the weight of isolation. He's going to need a companion. And so God made him one. So from the very beginning, we learn this all-important truth in this garden. That we are actually wired for relationship. We were created and wired in such a way that we need relationship. It's not just a nice amenity to sprinkle into your life. Like, you know, friends, it just, it's a nice thing to have, but, you know, I just, I don't do friends very well. So I'm not going to do friends, right? The problem is we're wired for a relationship. Now look at how this relationship was expressed. If you look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. In fact, we don't even need to read it. I can just tell you because a lot of you know this, this verse. It says, now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they had a child. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Right? So here's this interesting thing. I love that this verse actually makes it in so early into the Bible. Because the Israelites, in the time of this writing, they had this, uh, this, this beautiful um, understanding of intimacy. Right? They would, they would have defined intimacy, and the description hasn't really changed to this day. Intimacy is the same. Intimacy means to know and be known by another. To know and be known by another. So for Adam and Eve, the result of this knowing was that they had a baby, right? So, so to know and be known, see, God had given Adam and Eve three rules, right? Cultivate the garden, don't eat of that tree, and have babies. And, and this, this knowing was, was what involved that third rule. This knowing allowed them to even fulfill the third rule that God had given them. To know and be known. And really it's this knowing and being known without fear. Without fear of judgment. In, in the 1970s, Dr. Bruce Allen, Alexander conducted some experiments with rats that came to be known as Rat Park. Some of you might have heard this. It's, it's kind of one of the more popular uh, experiments on rats. So, so here's what happened. Okay. The experiment began with all these rats isolated. They were put in these environments where they're on their own, and they were given two bottles, one that had just regular water and another one that was laced with cocaine or heroin. And they just wanted to see, well, let's see what these rats do, right? And so overwhelmingly, the rats would choose the heroin. They would, they would drink it repetitively and almost addictively so that nearly all these rats got addicted to the heroin or the cocaine, the drugged water. In fact, they would drink, 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 drink to the point that they overdosed and even died. They drank themselves or drugged themselves to death. And so that first experiment was done. They said, oh, look, look how addictive these drugs are. But Dr. Alexander had this theory. He thought, I don't know if it's really about the drug. I think it's a lot more about the environment that this test was conducted in. And so he created Rat Park. 
And he just put all these tubes and foods and, and all sorts of stuff inside this park. And then he put the rats together in a community where they were allowed to roam. They could interact with each other. They could socialize. They could eat the food and just play in rat park. And they were given the same two bottles, water and heroin or drugs. What they discovered was fascinating. Overwhelmingly, the rats chose the water this time. There were still some who chose the drug, but those who drank and partook of it did so intermittently and never to the point of overdosing and dying. Here was the conclusion. Community beats addiction. Community beats addiction. Now, this was a rat experiment. <laughs> we're not rats. But I think what you're going to find um, in life, that this is true for humans too. This is true for us as well. Addiction is really a lot more about loneliness and isolation than it is about the drug of choice. Community beats addiction. So modern stories, or, or sorry, modern studies... <coughs> are really just showing what God has been saying all along. We were wired for a relationship. We were wired for community. And when we are removed from the relationship, when we're removed from community, the pain is multiplied. The isolation is overwhelming. And what we turn to is anything that will numb that isolation, that will numb those emotions. So the addictions become a lot more just about a medication that numbs you. So inside of all of us, there's this desire that God put in us, a desire to know and be known. It's like this relationship, community, this one-on-one -on -one knowing and being known is the food of our soul. And when we don't get it, we starve for it. We crave it. We might not be able to put our finger on it and know exactly what it is we're feeling. We might not be able to identify any given day. I'm feeling lonely right now. But the, you know when you're removed from a relationship, so you can just feel yourself craving it. Like when you fast from a meal and you feel yourself craving for food. You just know there's something in your life that you're starving for. So this knowing and being known, we all have this craving for. And for, for of course, this, this culminates in the physical knowing, which allowed Adam and Eve to fulfill that third commandment. But really, this is more about an emotional knowing. Because we're meant to know others. We're meant to be known by our friends. We're meant to know and be known and have that intimacy and have that relationship with people in our lives. So here's my question. Why on earth would anybody choose then to be isolated? Why on earth would anyone choose not to have a relationship if that's the thing that we crave? And the answer is pretty simple. Toxic shame causes us to hide. Toxic shame causes us to hide. If you're still in Genesis, just flip back to Genesis chapter 3. And here's the lesson we learned from this garden. In this garden, they, they eat of the fruit that was forbidden. They broke rule number two. And this happened before they were even able to fulfill rule number three. And after they had done this, after they had broken the rule, 
don't eat of that tree, something strange happened on planet Earth. For the first time in all of creation, someone felt shame. It's the first experience of shame any human being had ever felt. Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. They saw, they knew that they were naked. This made them feel shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This God that they had walked with regularly day by day. The same God that they had a good, healthy relationship with. They heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve were so ashamed of themselves that they actually literally hid themselves from God. Now you would think that's such a silly thing to do. God knows where they are. God knew where they would be hiding, and still God kind of plays along. Adam, Eve, where are you? And he coaxes them out of hiding. And then they show up, and then they confess. That's what toxic shame does. Toxic shame convinces us that we are unlovable, unacceptable, unredeemable. And what do we do when we feel those things? We hide ourselves. And we don't hide ourselves behind trees, right? We're not actually uh, physically hiding our presence from God. But we still hide ourselves, don't we? We hide behind Facebook. We hide behind work. We hide behind church. Theology. We love to play the church games, don't we? I'm not pre- preaching at you. I'm, I'm preaching to myself in this moment. We're all in this boat together that we love to show up to church wearing the Sunday best. Acting like it's all good. Parading ourselves like life is just so perfect for us. And we're just at such peace. And whenever it's handshaking time and, and we're asked, how you doing? We say, living the dream. Just living it up. If I was any good, any better, I'd be dead. You know, all the platitudes, you gotta know it. Listen, I, I'm as guilty, if not more guilty, than anyone else. I honestly do consider myself the chief of sinners in this because I'm, I'm bad at this. In fact, it's so bad, I have, a, I have a name for that version of myself. I call it St. James. St. James loves church. Because he gets to come and show off, like, how good he's doing. What he learned today. How wise St. James can be. Right? And so when St. James shows up, you know what, St. Like, the worst thing that St. James would ever confess to anybody is that I prayed for one hour this morning instead of two. You know what I'm saying? It's when the confession is a lot more of a boast than it is a confession. Yeah, I'm just I'm struggling with my prayer life. That's what I need prayer for. Like, would you just pray for me about my prayer? Like, is that really the worst thing you're struggling with, yo? Is that really all you've got going? No. But St. James is going to hide behind that little spiritual facade, right? It's that Facebook version of you. 
and of me. We're just convinced that we're going to have to put on a show unless people find out who we really are. Have you ever considered it to be an act of integrity? To actually tell someone how you're really doing when you're asked? An act of integrity to actually tell someone how you're doing when you're asked. I have to confess, Weston asked me this morning, how you doing, man? And I lied to him. <laughs> I said, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And St. James was like, yes, dodge that one. <laughs> right? To be honest, I told Jessica, I was just unsettled this morning. Just unsettled. I haven't put my finger on it yet. Just unsettled. And that's the honest answer. That's not St. James. That's, that's real James. Just unsettled this morning. Probably nervous about speaking. I'm not sure what. But it's an act of integrity to tell how you're really doing when you're asked. If that's an act of integrity, then it's an act of not integrity to lie to someone. Doing good. Living a dream. If I was any better, I'd be dead. Right? And that's such a, such a tiny little thing, and sometimes you just don't want to get into it, right? Sometimes you're just feeling so much, you're just kind of like, I'm doing good, which means please don't press it. <laughs> and that's okay too, but let's be honest about that. Let's be honest with, I'm not doing so great, but I'm, I'm not feeling like talking about it right now. This isn't the time and place. Ask me again later. Maybe we can talk later. That's a good, honest answer. I love that answer because then I'm like, dude, thank you for being honest with me. Thank you for trusting me enough to give me an honest answer. So here's the thing. If in your heart you're feeling pain, sadness, loneliness, and you choose to hide it, you choose to pretend like you're not, you, you, you do like your father Adam, and you hide yourself. You bottle up. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to others. In fact, we learn in this first garden from our first father Adam, we learn how to hide. We learn how to not confess. We learn how to pretend. That's the lesson we learned from our father Adam. And here's the real problem with this. As long as the fake you is all that's known, as long as you've got this defense up and this is all that's known and all that's loved, the real you is starving for relationship. The real you is craving it. So no matter how much this version of you is hanging out, no matter how much this version of you is going to church and talking with people and pretending, the real you is starving for a relationship. And this is what we're wired for. We are wired for relationship. So how do we get this relationship that we crave? How do we get there? Here's my answer for you. It's pretty simple. Vulnerability allows relationship. I don't know what the individual answer is for all of you. How do I get relationship? The answer does need to be individual, by the way, so I can't give everyone an answer in here. How do you get relationship? You're going to have to talk about that, pray about that, seek God for it, and, and figure that one out. But here's what I do know is true for everyone in this room. You can't have real relationship without vulnerability. <coughs> So, to illustrate this, let's fast forward to another garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. Can you turn to Matthew chapter 26? 
We learn another lesson in a, in a second garden. I'm going to read verses 36 through 38. And you guys maybe know what the Garden of Gethsemane is. This is where Jesus goes with his disciples. These are his last hours of freedom before he's taken for crucifixion. And so what does Jesus, the God-man, do in his last hours of freedom before he's led off to a, a, a gruesome death? Read verses 36 and 38. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Do you know that Jesus experienced the same emotions we do? It wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong for Jesus to feel sad or grieved or scared or angry. He had that in common with us while he was here on earth. He felt what we felt. He knows what we feel in the deepest parts of our heart. And so what does he do? He circles up with his guys. He calls his closest friends to him. He goes with them to a private location. And this is what he said to them. My soul is so sorrowful, even to the point of death. Would you just remain here and watch with me? This seems a little melodramatic to me. Of course, I've never faced like death. I've never gone to my death the way Jesus has, so I don't know how I, I would react in this situation. But I've never like gathered up my friends and said, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. So part of me is kind of like, this, this is the St. James. Come on, Jesus. Yeah, like, why you, gotta, why you gotta let us all in on that? Why can't you just go bravely to the cross? Why do you have to show weakness like that? Why do you have to be scared? Aren't we supposed to all be brave and not show our fear? Aren't we not supposed to show our grief and sadness? Aren't we supposed to be strong even when we're facing death? That's what I tell myself. And that's what I feel about this. It just seems like such a strangely human thing for God to do. Here's what we learned from the second Adam in this garden. To come out of hiding and to be vulnerable. To come out of hiding and to be vulnerable. Nobody likes being vulnerable. We'd rather hide. None of us like to admit we're scared. No one likes to admit that we're sad. At least I don't. Maybe you're fine with it. Maybe you're just kind of like, everything on my sleeve probably healthier than than me bottling it up. But here's the thing. You can't have relationship without being vulnerable. It's It's like trying to get married without ever proposing. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Like, proposal is a scary thing. No matter how much you know she loves you and how much you love her, no matter how much you've talked about it leading up to the point, the act of pulling out the ring, getting on one knee, and exposing how much you really care 
I want to spend my life with you. I love you so much that I'm willing to just give you everything. That's a scary exposure. Exposure. That is being vulnerable to say, I love you. Do you accept me? Do you feel the same way as I do? I guess you could probably get married without proposing, but traditionally, you're going to go through the vulnerability to get the good parts of marriage, right? So here's the thing. More than, than you can't have a relationship unless you're being vulnerable. Even, even beyond that, your relationships that you have now will only be as deep as you are vulnerable. Your relationships will only be as deep as you are vulnerable. I've heard stories, I think it was like my great-grandpa, my great-great-grandpa, I just remember hearing this family story of my great-great-grandpa saying, I told you I loved you when we got married, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> what a terrible thing. It's like, I have no need to tell you how much I love you anymore, because I proved it when I married you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. Like, that's a man who's afraid of being vulnerable. And as a result, that's a man who's lonely. It's a lonely man who's afraid to say how much he cares. To show himself, honestly, to be known by another. It's a man who let his fear drive him into hiding. Do you know who Jesus didn't die for? He didn't die for St. James. I don't know if you've got your own version, your Facebook version of you. He didn't die for St. James. You know how I know that? It's because St. James doesn't exist. Jesus didn't die for someone who didn't exist. You know who he did die for? The real James. The one who's scared. The one who's angry. The one who's sad and grieving. He loves the real James, warts and all. To me, that's a beautiful thing. And, and to me, listen, Jesus Christ is crazy about the, the angry soul in you. He's crazy about the scared heart that you have. He loves so much that grieving you. He doesn't want you to hide it from him. He's calling you out from hiding behind the trees. He's calling you out from being so protected that no one will ever know you. He started with Adam and Eve and he's called every single person out since then out of hiding to be known. Because you know what Jesus did in the garden? After he calls up his buddies, he says, would you just watch and pray with me? And then he goes a bit further. And he's more vulnerable with God, the Father, than I've ever seen anybody be. He's more vulnerable to the point of weeping, sweating, as it were, drops of blood. And just crying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is showing his true colors. Why? Because he craves a relationship with the Father. He's not hiding himself from God. 
He's laying it all out there. Have you ever considered it might be an act of integrity to tell God that you're angry with him? It might be an act of intimacy to tell God you're angry with him. I've had those moments. I deal with that a lot. And, and I've convinced myself, no, I can't be angry with God. That's wrong. I can't, I can't do that. And so I act like I'm not angry with God. And I just pray, Lord, it's your will. You know, if it's your will, then, then you will be done. It's an act of integrity to tell God you're angry with him. To tell God you're sad, that you don't understand his plan. Why would you allow this? This is vulnerability, and that is exactly what allows you to have the relationship that you crave with the Father. The vulnerability he, that Jesus showed with his disciples is exactly what will allow you to have the relationship you crave with other people. So here's the thing, y'all. Here's what I encourage you to do. Share your feelings. Share your hopes. Share your passions. Show others how much you actually care about something. Take the risk. And what you'll find is the relationship that you've longed for all along with others and with God. That's who Jesus Christ died for. That broken wicked, sinful you that we try to hide and clean up and cover up. That's who he loves. That's who he wants a relationship with. He doesn't want the whitewashed tombs. He doesn't want a cup that's cleaned up on the outside and filthy on the inside. He loves you, warts and all. So let me close by risking a moment of vulnerability with you. Okay? Ever since Paxson was born, I don't think I've even really shared this with Jessica. Ever since Paxson was born, he's made me a little uncomfortable. Because he's a little needy and he just wakes me up in the middle of the night. I mean, all that. But, but emotionally, he's given me this discomfort. See, I'm one who, who I like to hide. I hide behind theology. I hide behind ministry. I hide behind humor. I just, whatever I, I hide by just sheer avoidance of other people. I'm one who likes to hide. I hide my heart. I hide my passions. I hide what I care about. But I also have this desire to have a relationship with Paxton where he knows me and I know him. I want him to know my love for him. I want him to know his real daddy. And that scares me. It makes me uncomfortable. So the difficulty is that I know that there's no way to show Paxton my love and push my heart to the background. I know that there's no way for me to have the intimacy with Paxton, to know and be known by him, and still keep my heart from him. I know I have to risk vulnerability with him. I know I have to risk vulnerability with my wife. I know I have to risk vulnerability with my friends, and I know there's no way to do that while keeping my heart from them. So here's what I do. I go to counseling. Every week, I go to Sage Hill, which is over by the Wax Print Shop. I don't know what road that is. 
I go to Sage Hill every week and I meet with a counselor. And I talk with him about being vulnerable with people because I feel this is so important to me. And it's hurt me for so long. This hiding has hurt me for so long. I'm tired of it. And I crave connection with other people that I just haven't felt. And I long to connect, to be known, and and to know others. And it's just hurt me for so long. I'm willing to prioritize my money that I don't have a lot of and pay to go see a counselor and meet with him 50 minutes a week to talk about being vulnerable with other people. Because I know I need it. And I can admit, I'm at a point now, I'm just not good at it, and I need help. And so I see a counselor about this. I hate sharing my hopes. I hate showing how much I care. I hate sharing my feelings. It seems unmasculine. But I know my relationships will only be as deep as I am vulnerable. And I crave relationships. I'm wired for relationships. And so are you. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that you illustrated vulnerability to us. I think you took the first move in showing us how much you care because you sent Jesus Christ down here to show us yourself. So when we think of the Father, we can think of Jesus Christ because Jesus was the image of the invisible God. He was the firstborn of creation who came to show us exactly who you are. Jesus came to show us exactly how much you care. You came to show us exactly how much you love us. You were first vulnerable to us. You showed your heart and asked us first, would we accept you? What a vulnerable thing. It's the proposal before the marriage. God, let us take that example. Let us live it out in our own lives, Father. Let us be vulnerable. Let us be open. And let us find that relationship that we crave, that we're wired for. Pray this in your son's name.